10 years ago, April 12, 2007. A 39-year-old man stationed himself next to a trash bin at a subway station in Washington, D.C. He had on a sweatshirt and a baseball cap. He looked like a typical street entertainer, very familiar to those who use public transportation. He opened a violin case and seated it with some change. He started to play. He did not play just anything. He started with a Bach number that is one of the most challenging pieces for violin. And he was not playing just any violin. He was playing a Stradivarius made in 1713, so famous and valuable an instrument that it had been stolen twice. The violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest today. He was being an accomplice with the Washington Post newspaper to willingly participate in an experiment. Disguised as a common street entertainer, with the greatest violinist in the world playing the best music ever written on the most expensive violin, would he get anybody's attention at rush hour? So what happened? It was three minutes into his performance, and after 63 people had rushed by, one man finally slowed down and looked, but did not stop. It was six minutes into it before one man stopped, leaned against a wall, and listened. In total, 1,070 people rushed by without giving any attention at all for 15 minutes. 27 people threw in some change as they were running by for a total of $32. Joshua Bell usually made $1,000 a minute at concerts. For the most part, they just did not see him for the person he really was. The resulting newspaper article won a Pulitzer Prize. And one line of print in the story really leaped out at me. Quote, he is the one who is real. They are the ghosts. He is the one who is real. They are the ghosts. There's something about incognito stories that grabs our attention. Greatness unnoticed. Talent ignored. Fame overlooked. And the first Easter Sunday evening has the greatest of all incognito stories. It's a story about the one who is so real that he makes the rest of us look like ghosts. We started looking at that story last week. Cleopas and another disciple of Jesus were walking away from Jerusalem where their Savior had been crucified earlier that weekend. They were on a road to a town called Emmaus. The road to Emmaus, we said last week, is the road you take to walk away from your disappointments. Maybe even your disappointments with your Savior. It's the road home, the road to work, the road to the daily grind, the road back to that place where discouragement is just kind of woven into your ordinary life. Along the way, a stranger joins you. This stranger is the risen Christ, but you cannot recognize him because, like Cleopas and his friend, you are still focused on your losses and you do not expect to see him. We saw last week that Jesus first spent some time, after he had listened to them, he spent some time teaching these two pilgrims 
uh, how to read and understand the Bible differently, to see the Messiah everywhere on its pages. That is always the starting place for discovering a new and accurate vision of salvation and redemption. Jesus uses the scriptures to indicate that the Messiah does not prevent loss. No, what the Messiah, the Savior, does is to provide his new resurrected life in the midst of our losses by entering into our losses with us. As it was getting late, the two travelers invited the stranger to come in and stay with them. So let's read our text for today. This is the second of three sermons where we are on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verses 28 through 35. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of God. The text tells us that Jesus kept on walking as if he were going to continue on down the road. But the hearts of those two disciples were burning within them. And they they couldn't let him go. Neither can you if you are going to find the grace that your soul craves. You have to take the stranger in. You have to stay with Jesus even when you cannot see him. When they ask Jesus to stay, remember, they still do not know who he is. They don't know yet that this stranger is the risen Christ. So what fires up their hearts is not seeing Jesus. What fires up their hearts is finally understanding the scriptures, seeing the Messiah there. And for the same reason, I believe, that Jesus had asked questions of them on the road, he now wants them to initiate what happens next, to demonstrate that their hearts have been fired up and they want more. They want more. Jesus is wanting them to move beyond knowing, to following, to abandon themselves completely to God and his plan. Why did they invite him in? This isn't just about showing hospitality. This is about more teaching. They've had enough to know they want a lot more. Stay with us, they say in verse 29. They don't even put a time limit on it. For the night, for the evening, for a meal, for the hour, stay stay. So he went in to stay with them, says verse 29. We saw last week that it said in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is very significant. You read the gospel accounts, nobody who saw Jesus after his resurrection really recognized him. Not at first. 
and not unless God opened their eyes. So it was that night, when they were at the table together, the three of them, that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. This is signature activity for Jesus. This is classic Christ. It has his fingerprints all over it. It is what he did with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. It's what he did with the establishment of the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. It's what he did with his own life for 33 years on this earth, culminating at the cross. He became the bread of life, broken, blessed, and given for us. And then, as Henry Nouwen says in his book, Life of the Beloved, it is also what Jesus does to us as his followers. He takes us, blesses us, breaks us, and gives us to a holy purpose of God in this world. As Cleopas and his friends saw Jesus holding the broken bread, it was then that their eyes were opened. They had hoped Jesus would be their redeemer. And what do you know? It turns out that he was. Then their eyes were opened, says verse 31, and they recognized him. In seeing those pieces of broken bread in his nail-scarred hands, they finally saw that this was their crucified Savior. This was their risen Lord, the one who holds all of our broken lives, broken dreams, broken relationships, broken bodies. All of it is held in this the hands of our Savior. All of it is held in the breaking that he went through for us. The scars on his hands make that point. And that's what we're talking about today, recognizing the risen Christ. Recognizing the risen Christ. In the original fairy tale version of The Wizard of Oz, the tin man had once been a real man who was in love with a beautiful maiden. And he dreamed of marrying her. The wicked witch hated their love, so she cast a spell on him, so that one by one, his limbs had to be replaced with artificial tin limbs. The tin limbs allowed him to keep working, and he worked like a machine. So, with a heart of love for his maiden, and arms and legs that never tired, he seemed destined to win against the spell of the wicked witch. But the tin man said, I thought I had beaten the wicked witch then, and I worked harder than ever, but I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. The wicked witch made the tin man's axe slip, and he cut himself in half. And even though a tinsmith was able to fasten him back together, alas, he had no heart, with the result, as he put it, that I lost all my love for the girl and did not care whether I married her or not. Most of you know the rest of the story. Caught in a rainstorm, the tin man begins to rust, you know, remaining in that spot until Dorothy comes all the way from Kansas to rescue him and start him on his journey to Oz. In the book written by L. Frank Baum, the tin man tells Dorothy, During the year I stood there, I had time to think that the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth. But no one can love who has not a heart. And so I'm resolved to ask the Oz to give me one. So here was a man in this story who was once real and alive and in love, 
But after a series of blows, his humanity was reduced to efficiency. He became almost a sort of machine, a hollow man with no heart. Life in a fallen, broken world has a way of doing the same thing to us. We, too, have suffered a series of blows. And as a result, we may still go through the motions of life, busy, productive, efficient, even religious or spiritual, but we've lost our heart. But here's the good news. The risen Christ can restore our lost hearts and renew our broken hearts with his hope. The risen Christ alone can do that. That is part of what's proclaimed every time we come to the Lord's table. The risen Christ is here with you to restore you, to renew you. It starts with a communion of brokenness as we come to see that everything that is broken in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our city, in this world, everything that is broken is held in the broken hands, the broken body of Jesus Christ. So to be clear, you do not get your act together in order to have communion with God. That will never work, but that is what we always try. You do not get your act together in order to have communion with God. We come to communion precisely because we do not have our act together. We are broken. At the table, we commune with his broken body and poured out blood. Do you see, this is a Savior who was broken for your sake, for your sin. This is a Savior who knows all about it. He really knows how it is. He knows how it feels, much more than we do. And that's where the communing begins. We have a Savior who knows, who was broken for us. But then we realize this is also a risen Lord. He didn't stay in that grave. (laughs) No, he's holding the broken world and our broken selves, which means the broken can now be healed. Isn't that good news? I read a posting, I think about a month ago by Lecrae, that said this. Don't be ashamed of your scars. They prove to wounded people that healing is real. Don't be ashamed of your scars. They prove to wounded people that healing is real. The scars of Jesus prove that for you. As he takes your brokenness, your sin into his hands forgives you, and begins to make you whole. But just like him, you will have scars that remain. And your scars will prove to others that there could be forgiveness and healing for them too as you point them toward Jesus Christ. Amen? At this holy moment where Cleopas and his friend finally recognized that this stranger was the risen Christ, he vanished from their sight. In that moment, something happened. The unrecognized, visible presence, the stranger, becomes the recognized, invisible presence, the risen Savior and Lord. Say what? (laughs) What was that? (laughs) Can you say that again? 
Yes, I can. In that moment, the unrecognized, visible presence, the stranger, becomes the recognized, invisible presence, the risen Savior and Lord. Now, if I were writing scripture, thankfully for all of us, I'm not. But if I were writing scripture, at the moment those disciples recognized Jesus, I would have had lots of excited screaming and shouting and backslapping and hugging. But I actually love what really happened. They didn't go into a conversation like this, like, wow. Wasn't it amazing to see a glorified body? I've always wondered about that. Wow, he vanished. Just like that. Never seen that before. And by the way, where did he come from when he showed up on the road? No, they didn't talk about that at all. They, they talked about something that we can talk about today. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Verse 32. What lit their hearts on fire was that the scripture came alive to them with a living Savior and Lord on every page. It burned like fire in their bones. And what was that burning? It was the burning of of joy. Incredible joy. The joy was so overwhelming and so overpowering that they jumped up from the table when Jesus disappeared, turned right around and headed back in the pitch dark of night, back seven miles to Jerusalem on foot to share that Jesus was alive. (laughs) That's joy. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And the scriptures are alive, the living word of God. And so these disciples, their fired up hearts came from Jesus explaining, opening up the scriptures, showing himself there. And Jesus opens our eyes in the same way that he did for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus through the scriptures. So several things happen all at once. It's really hard to keep up. Several things happen all at once when God opens your eyes to recognize the risen Christ for who he is. One, you have an internal passion and joy because you suddenly realize he's the living truth who seals all of scripture as the truth of God by his resurrection from the dead. And that means your salvation, your forgiveness is secure in him as the risen son of God. Second thing happens, you you can't contain this. I can say it, you can hear it, but you can't, how can you contain that? We can't contain that. And so you run to share the news and spread the fire. And three, you have communion with Jesus that was simply not possible before. He is right here with you and with all of his followers at the same time, all the time, and in all your broken places. So why do you think Jesus disappears from their sight at the moment they recognize him? There is mystery here, but I think it's primarily because Jesus does not want to remain a stranger to us. What he wants is communion with us. Jesus does not want to remain a stranger to us. What he wants is communion, fellowship with us. In other words, 
Jesus would rather that you know him than see him. Jesus would rather that you know him than see him. Here's what I mean. As long as Jesus remained in the flesh, the disciples could see him, but he was always a kind of stranger to them. They never really got it. They they never really knew who he was and never really understood him. They were always having conversations like, did you get that? I didn't. No, I never understand what he's saying or what he means. Jesus was always the one leading, directing, teaching, healing. But what happens here? At the Lord's table, the Spirit opens our eyes to see that we now have a mystical union with Jesus Christ by faith. We are united to him. We cannot see him, but we know him. And we are with him and he with us. We are in communion together. This was his plan all along. This is important. I think we spend a lot of life feeling like we are the other, that we have no true communion or fellowship really with almost anybody. We spend a lot of life feeling like we are the other. I don't think I've ever met a person who did not feel different other than everybody else, alone, isolated, We have a hard time making ourselves understood, even to people we care about. Frankly, we have a hard time understanding ourselves, don't we? And it looks like everyone else in church has their act together, but we worry that we do not and we never will. We have hurts that are not felt by the rest, experiences that are not shared by the rest, passions that are not understood by the rest. And if we are not understood, even by those who love us, we wonder in our dark moments how God could ever understand us or love us. But at the Lord's table, we discover that God will not remain a stranger to us. He's committed. He will not remain a stranger to us. And he will not allow us to remain a stranger to him. And that is what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper offers, communion with the living God. But when you see that, (laughs) when you see that, the sky's the limit. Big changes can begin in your life. It's then that religion and spirituality ceases to be a lot of rules, petty moralisms, or baptized ideologies for either conservative or liberal agendas. When you start experiencing this mystical union, you join the Apostle Paul in saying, it is not I who live. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That was the most real reality to him. It's got to be the most real reality to us. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the risen Savior is with you as the recognized but invisible presence. He's no longer that stranger you can see, but he's with you. He's in you, and that alone can change your life. At the moment these two disciples see that, they immediately get up and head back to Jerusalem. I want you to remember, Jerusalem, (laughs) that was the place they were fleeing. That was the place they were fleeing. It was the place of loss, grief, pain. It was the place of Golgotha, 
the skull, the cross, where they were afraid to remain anymore. Let's get out of Dodge. Why did they go back? It was not because they had a new vision of Jerusalem. No, it was because they had a new vision of Jesus Christ. That he was risen from the dead and alive with his followers. So, that that gave them a new vision of themselves. And their purpose, their lives. Now their alienation has turned into communion. Their fear has turned into courage. Their despair has turned into hope. And their fleeing has turned into mission. Maybe there's something that you've been fleeing for a long time. An old wound that keeps hurting and just won't heal. A failure or sin that you are terrified will be made known. Harsh words spoken long ago that still haunt you. Evil done to you in childhood that still cripples you. You got on the road to Emmaus thinking that if you got far enough away, just seven miles, just far enough away, or if you became successful enough or smart enough, if you collected enough degrees, enough money, enough relationships, then you could escape the terrible time you had back there in old Jerusalem. But the first place the risen Christ wants to go back to with you is back to the place of your fears, your losses, your grief, your pain, your disappointments. Because it is not until you go there with Jesus, in him, that you will finally be free. Have you noticed It doesn't matter how much time you spend reviewing it, you are never going to have a better past. (laughs) Have you realized that yet? No matter how much time you spend reviewing it, you are never going to have a better past. Your past is past, and it's your past, okay? (laughs) I know this to be true, and I know it to be important, because I tried to make that happen for myself. I worked really hard at that. I wanted to have a better past. I wanted to edit out certain failures and sins in my life. I didn't want you to know or see those things. But no matter how much time I spent reviewing it, I was never going to get a better past. So until you go there in communion with Jesus, it's frightening to go there without him. But until you go there in communion with Jesus, the risen Christ, and go there for forgiveness and acceptance, until you have freedom about it and even gratitude for it, you will always be trying to revise it or run away from it or both. I don't know what Jesus will take you back to face. It may be an actual place, or it may may have nothing at all to do with the geographical place. It may be a person or a family, it may be a church, or a painful experience from long ago. But I do know that to see the not visible but very present and known Christ risen from the dead to bring life and hope to me, I do know that to see him is to be thankful that all of my brokenness is forgiven and is held and healed in his nail-scarred hands. Amen? And I know that until you let him redeem your past, 
You will only and always be on the road away from it, but never getting anywhere. You will not be free to travel on the road to a future that is filled with his hope. So why does this story matter today? It matters for a lot of reasons, but one is it matters because it shows that lives can be transformed today in the same way they were back then, through the power of the scriptures and the presence of the living God. You can know the resurrected Christ as he reveals himself through his word. Today he does it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes and showing us Jesus, rather than Jesus physically walking with us. But it's just as powerful and just as effective. The result is the same. A burning desire to know him more and a passion to tell somebody about it. Are those present in your life? If so, awesome. Go out and tell someone this week. If not, here's what you can do. Admit your lack of knowing God's word or caring about what God's word says or your expectations and demands of what God is supposed to do. Admit all of that and start spending some time, just a little bit of time, every day reading God's word. Asking Jesus to open your eyes to his presence that you might recognize the risen Christ in what you read. I'm confident that he will answer that prayer. That's a prayer he loves to answer. But please remember, when Jesus is so close, you need to ask him to stay. When Jesus is so close, you need to ask him to stay. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. Stay. While he talked, their hearts began to burn within them. They wanted more of this stranger. Yet he was going to go right on down the road, past the village, and off into the night. They strongly urged him to stay with them. It was late. They all needed to eat. Could he not stay? He relented and consented to stay and to eat with them. But I personally believe that Jesus would have gone on if they had not asked him to stay. This was no play acting or pretending on Jesus' part. I believe he was going to go on unless they constrained him to stay. He walked with them, let them open up their hearts to him, heard their disappointment, and taught them from God's word. But then he was going to go on unless they took the next step. It's the same right here. Right now, today, through the word of this good news about Jesus, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead to give life to all who trust in him, through this gospel, God is drawing near to somebody in this crowd today. Maybe you. Maybe you. Something in you has opened up a bit. There's a sliver of hope. You've told him your heartache, your disappointment. He's heard you, and he has taught you today from this particular scripture. It may be that your heart is starting to burn within you. That's what's going on 
the next move is yours. He is drawing you, you see. He is drawing you, but he does not drive you or drag you to himself as if you were an inanimate object. No, just as the spring warmth draws the daffodils and the crocuses up from the ground, he draws you. Just as the spring warmth draws the sap up from the roots of the trees, he draws you. Just as the gentle pull of the moon's gravity raises the tides, he draws you. He's the risen son of God. He is drawing you. If he acted on you with brute force, it would probably kill you. It would probably crush you. You have to take the next step. Jesus was going on because he had somewhere else to go. If they did not want him, then 3,000 people at Pentecost wanted him. If they did not, a village of Samaritans wanted him. If they did not, an Ethiopian on the road wanted him. If he did not, Lois and Eunice and Timothy and Lydia and a jailer at Philippi wanted him. If the old world did not want him, the new world wanted him. If Europe and the USA no longer want him, Millions in Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana and Sierra Leone and China want him. You will not stop him. He is on the move. And he wants you to move with him. But he will go on to the millions who want him if you do not. If today you do, want, you, you do not want him, he can pass right on by. He can go right on down the boulevard and stop at another place that needs him and knows it and wants him to stay. In that place, there will be joy and peace and hope. He can save a marriage in that house. He can bring renewal to that house. He can forgive sin and heal wounds in that house. He can bring eternal life to that house just down the road from you. Stay. Say to him, stay. Stay with me, Jesus. Stay with me, Lord. Be my Savior. An old hymn puts it into a prayer like this. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Make that your prayer. Make that the cry of your heart today. Amen?